With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A new set of sanctions set to take effect is intended to choke off Russia's lucrative diamond industry. Thing is, it's unlikely to change things much until the industry can individually identify the gems and track them through many changings of hands. And... For a while there, it seemed like the Marvel media empire could do no wrong. A cinematic money spinner for the ages. Then things kind of went downhill. We examined the missteps and misfortunes that have befallen the franchise. But first... We are at the Trump headquarters in the Sheraton Hotel in Nashua, New Hampshire. Idris Kaloon is The Economist's Washington bureau chief. Donald Trump has won very quickly. In about two minutes after the last polls closed, uh, his victory was announced. Everyone here is waiting for him to come out. The entire MAGA cinematic universe is here. Carrie Lake is here. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a few feet behind us. Tim Scott is here, Vivek Ramaswamy. Many of the people who ran to be the Republican nominee are here. They've all endorsed Donald Trump. The only woman left standing is Nikki Haley. She gave her concession speech um, a few minutes ago, but she said that she would continue to fight on and would fight on until her home state of South Carolina. Yesterday, former President Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary, making it two for two in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. You know, we won New Hampshire three times now, three. three. We win it every time. We win the primary, we win the generals, we've won it, and it's... uh, Mr. Trump's last remaining challenger is Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina and ambassador to the United Nations during his administration. She conceded the New Hampshire race. I want to congratulate Donald Trump on his victory tonight. He earned it but vowed to continue her increasingly long-shot campaign for the Republican nomination. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. Miss Haley is betting on a win next month in her home state of South Carolina. But her failure to win over voters in New Hampshire makes the Republican nomination seem more and more like Mr. Trump's to lose. 
Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary a week after he won the Iowa caucuses by a very large margin, all of which suggests that he is the plain front runner in the Republican primary. There's only one candidate left who is seriously challenging him, and that's Nikki Haley. New Hampshire was a state in which she had bet her entire campaign, and even here she ended up losing by, it seems like, double digits. And the fact that even here she didn't manage to beat Donald Trump is a pretty big problem for her. And you said Nikki Haley bet her entire campaign on New Hampshire. Why was New Hampshire so important to her? It was the state that she always thought she was going to do better in compared with Iowa. A lot of that has to do with demographics. So Iowa is a quite conservative state with a lot of evangelical Christian voters, quite a lot of voters who did not attend college, not the crowd that votes for Nikki Haley. Whereas in New Hampshire, by contrast, there are quite a lot of voters who have a college degree and rates of religiosity are not nearly as high. And there are quite a lot of moderates who also vote in the Republican primary in New Hampshire compared with Iowa. Rules in New Hampshire also allow people who are not affiliated with parties to vote in the Republican primary, so that will also have helped Nikki Haley. And she intuited this pretty early on in her campaign, and she spent a lot of time in the state. She did hundreds of campaign stops. She secured the endorsement of the state's Republican governor, who's very popular, and they both went on a barnstorming tour of the state for weeks, basically. Importantly, when it comes to Republicans, we're tired of losing. We're tired of losing. We lost in 18 and 20. We are tired of losers and we're tired of losing. We want to win up and down the ballot. There's an amazing, amazing opportunity here. And even so, she ended up losing. So that points to just a very hard path forward for Nikki Haley. Idris, given all those advantages, why do you think she wasn't able to win? The Republican primary voter wants Donald Trump to be their nominee, and it's as simple as that. Nikki Haley had always been running in a slightly different lane from what is now the party establishment. She ran on a internationalist wing of the party, and she ceded the America First lane of the party to other contenders like Donald Trump, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, like the entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, both of whom have dropped out and endorsed Trump. But the problem for Nikki Haley is that the America First populist wing of the party is just much larger now than the internationalist wing that she represents. And so that was a natural limit on her. And she, I think, also up until recently, abstained from heavily criticizing Donald Trump. She intuited maybe correctly that there isn't very much appetite among Republican voters for vociferous criticism of Donald Trump. And so she had a slightly muddled message on Trump, and that probably hurt her as well. One of the staple lines of her stump speech, for example, is rightly or wrongly, chaos follows Donald Trump. I voted for Donald Trump twice. I was proud to serve America in his administration. I agree with a lot of his policies. But rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. You know I'm right. Chaos follows him. And we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. She studiously avoids saying where the chaos is coming from, 
Whereas for the last few weeks, once it became clear that Nikki Haley was the only remaining impediment to Donald Trump becoming president, he's been making specific allegations against her, saying that she is, for example, going to cut Social Security, that she is too lax on immigration. Even her supporters, who my colleague Stevie Hertz and I spoke to in New Hampshire, could tell that this was an issue. I think she's honest. She's, uh, I love her foreign policy. Um, I think uh, I wish she'd be a little bit more tougher on on Trump, but uh, I'll take what I can get right now. This was at a Nikki Haley campaign event on Monday evening, the day before the primary vote. There's also something of an enthusiasm gap between Donald Trump supporters and Nikki Haley supporters. A lot of Donald Trump supporters are voting for him because they believe in him, that he can go all the way and beat Joe Biden and resume the presidency that, in the views of many, was stolen from him in the first place. Compare that to the base of support for Nikki Haley. A lot of that is a vote against Donald Trump more than an affirmative vote for Nikki Haley and her agenda. And that was a theme that we heard over and over again from supporters, even at the Nikki Haley event. Um, I do. Governors make great presidents. And uh, I don't want four years of chaos or, you know, I want a, a normal Republican candidate. Can I ask if you voted for Donald Trump in 2016? No, I couldn't. Yeah. So you've been a never-Trumper for a while. Uh, yeah. Small groups. And where does the campaign go from here? Is there a chance that she could still turn it around? It is difficult for me to imagine her turning this around. The states that are going to vote in the coming weeks are those that resemble the demographic composition of Iowa more than New Hampshire. A lot of conservative voters, not as many voters who went to college, and not as many non-Republican independent voters who will be eligible to vote in those elections. The state of South Carolina, which Nikki Haley was governor of and ought to have a home state advantage in, is probably going to be the decisive blow that comes to her. And currently in the polls, she's trailing Donald Trump in her home state by about 37 points. Donald Trump has secured the endorsement of almost every notable figure in South Carolina politics. It is incredibly hard to imagine her coming anywhere close to winning in her own state. And that will be the point at which her campaign is well and truly over. And so for Mr. Trump, does he start looking ahead to November's election from this point? Yes. And I think he's arguably already started to look ahead to November. You can see that his campaign is spending time and money attacking Joe Biden as though the general election were already set. Donald Trump has really skipped this process in American politics, this idea of needing to spend months doing retail politics in Iowa, New Hampshire, in order to become eligible to the presidency. He pivoted to the general election weeks ago, and I don't see any reason why he would bother to really participate in the primary election, given how much he's abstained from it in the past. And Idris, you're still in New Hampshire, and you're going to be talking more about the state and the primaries on our US politics podcast, Checks and Balance, later this week. Yes, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into everything about New Hampshire, the coming primaries in Nevada and South Carolina on Friday. Idris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. 
Invest in extraordinary. Russia is subject to all kinds of sanctions with varying success, and a new set is just taking hold. The new measures agreed between the G7 and EU countries will start working progressively. On January 1st, Europe and the G7 banned imports of rough diamonds mined in Russia. A new year and a new round of EU sanctions against Russia. And two days later, the EU added Russia's state mining company to its sanctions list. The next step comes in March when the G7 and EU will ban Russian gems that have been cut and polished abroad. Then in September, they'll introduce a scheme to verify where diamonds were mined. All this should add up to the biggest reform to the business in decades, if it works. Russian diamond miners generate about $4.5 billion in revenue each year. Fraser McKilwraith writes for The Economist's digital team. They're a big part of the diamond industry worldwide. Those figures are pretty small compared with the revenue from their enormous energy sector. But diamond sanctions are symbolic as well as practical for Western governments. In what way are they symbolic? Well, nearly all of the industry's revenues come from the Siberian operations of Alrosa, which is a state-controlled monopoly with pretty close links to the Kremlin. The finance minister in Russia, a guy called Anton Siluanov, chairs its supervisory board, and under a sponsorship deal with the Russian Navy, a submarine in the Black Sea fleet bears the company's name and has done for a number of years. Western governments have had Alrosa in their sights for quite a while since Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, but up until now their actions have been pretty limited in their impact. And why is that? So back in 2003, there was a scheme established by the United States to prevent the trade in so-called blood diamonds mined in war zones, mainly by rebel groups. And that scheme was called the Kimberley Process. There were some attempts to use it, mainly driven by the UK and America, but it couldn't do the job. It operates by consensus. Countries need to agree to bring forward topics for discussion at its meetings. And Russia has been a member since it was founded, effectively has a veto, and blocked all discussion of labelling Russian diamonds as conflict diamonds. Shortly after the war started, America and Britain banned direct imports of Russian rough diamonds, but more comprehensive sanctions were held up by negotiations. Western countries really struggled to agree on a system. Diamond traders in Antwerp, which is a big hub for the industry, were pretty fearful of the impact that the measures might have, and they lobbied the Belgian government very, very heavily to slow down any measures being brought in across the EU. At the same time, Russian firms could send gems elsewhere to be cut and polished. 90% of gems worldwide are processed in India, and gems that were processed in places like that could then be legally exported indirectly to the UK and the US and other Western markets. Alvarez's most recent financial results suggest as much. They showed pretty buoyant sales throughout 2023. So how is the new sanction scheme going to work? How is it going to do what previous efforts have not? Belgium eventually abandoned its objections last September, which will allow the EU and the G7 to close the loophole, which allowed cut gems to make their way into G7 markets. The new scheme should eventually make clear the source of every diamond sold in those countries. The thing is, though, that the diamond industry's complex supply chains make an effective ban quite hard to implement. Stones are often traded multiple times in lots of different countries before they're finally sold to jewellers. And in the process, gems from different countries are often grouped together, and labelled as mixed origin. There will be a lot of challenges involved in making the system work. How do you mean, just in terms of being able to identify every single diamond? 
So diamond industry analysts think that a lot of the processing companies will have particular problems with this just because of how many times diamonds change hands along the supply chain. If those companies want to keep trading with Russian diamond miners and also keep customers in the West, they're going to have to be very, very diligent about segregating their supply chains, sometimes signing up to pretty onerous tracing systems that might involve some kind of third-party oversight. We don't really know how this is going to work yet either. The G7's only really given a rough outline of its plans for the system. Well, I mean, how might that even look? How do you individually identify a single diamond? So the industry's been working on this for a while. There are a couple of systems which are in the works, but none of them are widely available yet, and they tend to be based around high-tech solutions. So there's an industry group called the Gemological Institute of America. They inscribe microscopic serial numbers onto cut diamonds and record those diamonds in an online ledger. There's another company, an Israeli firm called Serene, which uses 3D scanning to create digital models of diamonds, both in the rough and the polished state, so that they can be tracked from source to eventually the kind of end product that they end up in. And De Beers, which is one of the biggest players in the industry, uh, has been around for a very long time, also has an in-house tracing system for its most valuable stones, but it hasn't really rolled it out across the rest of its supplies. The thing is, even if a workable system based around one of these sets of methods is devised, it's going to be very costly for a lot of Western miners and traders, and it's not yet clear how those costs will be passed on to customers. So it seems the intent is clear, but the plans aren't really, and yet it is going to be some kind of shake-up for the industry. How do you think that's going to work as regards the Russian side of things? Sanctions are definitely going to give Russia a headache, but they aren't likely to cripple the diamond industry. I think what we're going to see is a pivot towards a growing consumer base in China and India, where lots of consumers are buying more diamond jewellery than they did before. Uh, And we're going to see supplies redirected in that direction, much as we've seen with the oil and gas sector. The Kimberley process, which we discussed earlier, was quite effective in stopping rebel groups using gems to start wars and to fund conflict. But it's not been effective in preventing governments from doing the same. The good thing about a new tracing system, if it comes into force and if it's effective, is that it would effectively supersede the scheme and would allow the West to sidestep Russia's influence on it. There's no reason, in theory, why a tracing scheme that's effective, that tells you where diamonds came from, couldn't be used in the future to sanction countries other than Russia, which might be using diamonds to fund certain kinds of conflict. Ultimately, I think probably the biggest impact we'll see is an increased level of transparency for consumers. Consumers will have a much better idea of where their diamonds came from than they ever did before. Fraser, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. I'm always angry. Every time you turn around, there's another preview for a new superhero movie. They soar, they fight, they banter, and of course they vanquish evil and save the world. Thor's right, we gotta deal with these guys. How do we do this? As a team. Loki's going to keep this fight focused on us. Many of these characters, from Batman to Captain America, are old school, like the 1930s in some cases. But in recent years, Hollywood executives figured out that loyal fans would traipse back to the cinema for multiple chapters a year of these stories. 
Marvel and its cinematic universe helped set the pace. In 2012, The Avengers became the first Marvel film to rake in more than a billion dollars. But after years of hits, it seems Marvel isn't doing quite so marvelously. The Marvels, the 33rd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, finished its worldwide theatrical run at roughly $205 million. Matthew Ball writes about media and business for The Economist. While that might sound like a lot, it's the poorest performing Marvel film in history, and it will probably lose money. This wasn't a one-off disappointment either. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, which released in February of 2023, also underperformed and is expected to lose money. So this is quite a turnaround, isn't it? This, is, this has been a major cash cow, this cinematic universe, for really some time. That's quite right. Not only is it a precipitous fall, it's actually a fall from the highest highs that Hollywood has ever seen. For more than a decade, the Marvel Cinematic Universe had hit after hit after hit. The audience appetite for these films seemed insatiable. The success rate was without question. And then suddenly, we started to see flop after flop, with audience scores falling, critic scores falling, and the box office falling by an even greater degree. So before we sort of examine the decline then, let's talk about the rise. How did it get to be such a reliable franchise to begin with? One of the key innovations at Marvel is the now common cinematic universe model. Historically, we had a franchise such as Batman or Superman or even James Bond, which would release one entry roughly every three years, and it would focus on that single character. Marvel, beginning with 2008's Iron Man, said that this is an entire universe, an interconnected tapestry, where there would be Iron Man in one film, the Incredible Hulk in another, Captain America in a third, but quite regularly they would cross over into one another's film, bringing with them not only narrative and character development, but the audiences would cross-pollinate as well. That enabled Marvel to consistently launch new franchises with characters little known prior to that point. In effect, a character such as Black Panther or the Guardians of the Galaxy would see its fan base grown through another frontline character, such as the Hulk or Captain America. That also allowed them to avoid that multi-year gap between sequels. No longer did you have to release one entry every three years. You could do perhaps two or three, or in some years, five in that same master franchise in a single year. And so onward to the lows then. Where, where did all of this start to go wrong? A number of factors started to go wrong in 2020, one of which was China locking out the Marvel Cinematic Universe from release in the country, depriving it from a historical 13% of their worldwide box office. And to make the Cinematic Universe model work, it was necessary for Marvel to sign leading actors to nine or more picture deals so that they could count on their appearance throughout a decade. But that also surfaced some challenges and some threats. As the company sought to rebuild the core of the franchise, they were affected by the untimely and sudden death of Chadwick Boseman, the star of Black Panther, and some further misfires when it came to would-be new leads. Disney enlisted the actor Jonathan Majors to be the primary adversary of this second decade of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But early in 2023, Majors was arrested on allegations of domestic violence, subsequently found guilty at the end of 2023, and exited from the franchise by Disney accordingly. Another problem seems to be of Marvel's own making. 
Since 2021, the franchise has released an average of more than three films and three television series each year, a rate that seems to strain both audience appetite and the creative teams producing these films and series. It has also created a high barrier of entry to new fans. For prospective viewers in 2024, a release suggests that they need to do 33 films and 11 seasons of TV homework just to understand or appreciate each entry. So quite a combination of factors, some within and and some outside, the control of the universe, as it were. Do you think that Marvel can reverse its fortunes, regain its prior glories? There's certainly evidence that customer appetite for comic book films endures. Even though 2023 saw unexpected hits in Barbie, in Super Mario, and Oppenheimer, the third Guardians of the Galaxy film was the fourth highest grossing film of the year. This suggests that the issue is not about whether or not audiences are still interested in their favorite superheroes, still interested in the cinematic universe model. Instead, they're demanding better quality. And for his part, Bob Iger, Disney's recently returned CEO, seems to believe that that's the case. Last year, he made clear that the company lost its focus on quality creative in its efforts to thrive in the streaming wars, that the focus on volume led to the detriment of quality. From his perspective, that was not limited to Marvel either. Pixar, too, has struggled, as has Star Wars. And so in some regard, the struggles of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is emblematic of the struggles of Hollywood at large, focusing on a business model that itself is unproven, but on conquest before quality. Matthew, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.